Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, July 17th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She is a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and a Drama Desk, and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hey, James. How's it going? Good. Thanks for joining us again on a Sunday. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Always sure. exciting to be here. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So Peter is in Dayton, Ohio, at the Future Fest, which is run by the Dayton Playhouse in Ohio, and he's uh, judging a new play contest. So he's, he'll be back with us next week, and uh, so tune in then to see the next Felicia sighting. I sighted Felicia on <laughs> Thursday evening at the St. James Theater, where we were both there to see Into the Woods. Jenna, when did you see Into the Woods? I saw it on Friday nights. So you saw it on Friday, right after, after us. Yes. So, uh, was Brian Darcy James back? He was not. I got to see uh, a wonderful understudy, uh, Jason Forbach. Forbach. I'm not sure uh-huh. how to pronounce yes. his name. Yes, Forbach. Forbach. Yeah. I love seeing understudies. It's always exciting. And and there were three understudies the night I saw it. None of them disappointed. They did beautiful work. Yeah, they were great. I did see the same three understudies on the Thursday evening. So, Jenna, why don't you get us started and give us your review of Into the Woods on Broadway? Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, Let's see. I'm probably one of approximately, what, five people left in the city who did not get to see the production at Encores. (laughs) So uh, I really can't compare this production to what everybody else saw at City Center, though I really appreciate the way this production moved over. It kept the City Center aesthetic with the orchestra right up on stage and a very minimalist set. Uh, i really enjoyed that it was uh, i'm sorry i missed it at city center but i enjoyed seeing that there there's an awful lot that really works in this production at lear de Bessonet's very stripped down aesthetic works surprisingly well for the story i i guess that says a lot about the strength of the book and the score the show does not need flashy special effects or fairy tale style costumes to work i mean I would think the biggest special effects in this production is the pup tree. Uh, 
James Ortiz's puppetry is really gorgeous for this production. Uh, Kennedy Kanagawa plays Milky White the cow, and somehow the cow is one of the most compelling characters in the story. <laughs> Without uttering a word. I mean, it's a real uttering, nice uttering. Very funny. I swear that was not intentional. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely was intentional. Thank you for catching my pun. <laughs> but, um, it's just—it's a wonderful little testament to the power of great puppetry when uh, it, when that artwork becomes so—I don't know—so compelling. I love that. Mm. Um, I will complain, though. I think Debesene's direction is not consistent throughout the show. There are some performances that are really campy. There are some that are silly, but not quite over the top to the level of camp. And some are very natural. So the vibe changes from moment to moment uh, and not always in a natural or logical way. So some scenes just feel kind of disjointed. Uh, and I'll I'll try coming back to that later. Uh, I wanted to praise a lot of the cast. Uh, I really appreciated how the cast came together, especially with three understudies in lead roles. That can't be easy to adjust and adapt that quickly. So they did, all of them did really beautiful work. Uh, Jason Forbach was on as the baker for Brian Darcy James. Alex Joseph Grayson was playing Jack for Cole Thompson. Delphi Borit. Borich, I'm sorry, I, I should have figured out how to pronounce this name, uh, played Little Red Riding Hood. And all of them did really beautiful work. I mean, the baker is largely the straight man of the piece. And Forbach did lovely work as, you know, standing up to all the chaos and fantasy around him, uh, but also finding a lot of poignancy. I mean, his desperation for a family was really poignant and very powerfully done. Um, Alex Joseph Grayson's Jack was very funny. He's naive, but not dumb. And that's a difficult line to toe. And I really appreciated how, how he did that, making the character, he, he, he played a kid. He played, you know, an adolescent boy who's eager to explore things and will get himself into trouble the way adolescent boys do. But he's not dumb. And I really liked that uh, that interpretation of the role. Uh, Delphi, Delphi, I feel so terrible not knowing how to pronounce her name, uh, playing Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, also very funny. She scored a lot of laughs. And watching her emotions during moment, uh, not, oh, my God, moments in the wood, uh, mm -hmm. I know things now, was uh was really lovely. Just the confusion towards the beginning and then her confidence by the end. Now I know, don't be scared. Uh, she really did a lovely job with that. I really enjoyed her performance. I'd like to see her in more roles. Uh, and then Sarah Bareilles, I thought, did a very understated baker's wife. Uh, I'm obviously very spoiled watching the pro shot video from, I can't believe mm. that was 30 years ago. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Uh, um, Joanna Gleason scored a lot of laps in the role. Uh, and Sarah Bareilles did not score all of those laughs. She had a much calmer take on the part, but she did make me cry at the end, which I don't think any other baker's wife has done before. So I will absolutely raise my glass of iced coffee to her for that. She, uh, it was a very different take than I've ever seen, and it worked. It was very effective. Uh, Gavin Creel is you know, hammy. He's over the top, as you could hope for Cinderella's Prince to be. Um, 
My problem, though, with his performance, he earned so many laughs as both the wolf and as the prince. But when the moon turns a bit more serious, I didn't get that same depth of emotion from him. And this is where I was complaining about some moments. The emotions did not line. They weren't consistent. And it felt like people were not on the same page all the time. And in particular, his more poignant scenes in Act Two uh, felt inconsistent. Uh, Joshua Henry, he gets the smaller part of Rapunzel's Prince, but he's wonderfully silly. He sings beautifully because, of course, he's Joshua Henry. Um, but again, he was playing silly while Creole was playing campy. So their two scenes didn't seem to line up quite the way I hoped they would. But he's still Joshua Henry, and he's still wonderful. Um, it, it, a lot of the performances are beautiful. And oh, God, Patina Miller as the witch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she sings beautifully. But again, I, I, I didn't find a consistent arc for her. Uh, I loved her camping it up in the beginning when she's wearing a mask and the wig. Um, but there wasn't. I didn't find. A, I'm trying to figure out the words to describe this, the proper arc from her, her rage when she loses Rapunzel and then her grief in Act Two. It didn't seem to flow naturally. It just changed from moment to moment. And this is where, again, I, I find Debesinet's direction to be inconsistent from scene to scene. Um, I'm, no, Patina Miller is a phenomenal performer. Uh, been a fan of her sister act. So I, I don't know if some of the performers were just not on what sort I'm looking for, if having so many understudies on, uh, maybe threw things a little bit, uh, made things a little different from the way they normally would be. I'm really hoping I can go back and see it again on another night and see if it's the same experience. It's absolutely a show worth seeing multiple times. And I will, like I said, I was in tears by the end. The emotion is absolutely there, even if it's uneven from scene to scene. Um, oh, oh, <laughs> Amy Garcia as Jack's mother. Uh, oh my God, I can't believe I almost didn't mention her. Uh, she is a phenomenal comedian, but she also gives the character a lot of depth and emotion. In Act One, she's struggling with raising a son and keeping a roof over their heads, and then she's protecting her son in the second act. And see, I would say her arc felt a lot more natural. When we see her emotions change from scene to scene, it felt like a natural flow that was missing from some other performances. Uh, I love Amy Garcia. I've been a fan of her since Avenue Q. So it was wonderful to see her on stage. And I loved her performance. It felt very, very natural and very funny and very poignant. Uh, I also want to shout out uh, to David Rockwell's set. It's nicely minimalist, kind of reminded me of the New York City Opera's uh, A Little Night Music production with just the the white trees in the background against the different colored, uh, sorry, the white trees in the foreground against different colored backgrounds from uh, Tyler Mikolo's lighting, which does a beautiful job to set mood. I mean, again, this show is a study in minimalism, and it really shows how minimalism can work. It can highlight the strengths of a well-written show. And the show, at least the performance I saw, had some, like I said, some weak points. Uh, but I would go back to see it again to 
see how it is on a different night. It's worth seeing multiple times. And it's a beautiful production with some truly wonderful performances. And, you know, if you get to go now, you get to see some fantastic understudies. And it's always a joy to find great understudies. So, uh, Jenna, I, I, it's interesting what you say about Lear Jabessonet because I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I did notice what you had said between camp and funny and the, the, the different levels of each of the characters. And I, I've, I've really always attributed that to the writing because some of the characters, you know, have much, many, uh, you know, much more time to develop a character and, sure. Uh, get off and on stage, and and I keep coming back to uh, uh, you know uh, Cinderella's prince. I, I I was raised to be charming, not sincere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yes. so uh, when he says I was raised to be charming and not sincere, that that sort of for me let him off the hook mm. of not being so deep in the second act. Uh, mm. But and I I don't know. I don't know if Lear de Bessonic, I. I Okay, it could have, you know, changed that. Uh, I I don't know. I have to think about it. Uh, but that's really very very interesting. Uh, I I have to echo so much of what you've already said. Just uh, just the cast is amazing, and the understudies were just, you know, that you know if you didn't see the slip in the program, you would be like, yeah, this is the original cast. These are the people who are. There is no difference in talent between understudies on Broadway. There's just oh, not. absolutely. There's just yeah. not, and. And I just left every time uh, 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 Delphi said something. She was really, she was in that moment and she just nailed oh. it every single time. She was Her just, comic timing. Yes, her comic timing is so on point. So, so wonderful. And uh, Alex Joseph Grayson as Jack, uh, exactly what you said. He is there and again, uh, not to... Uh, not not to hit an old uh, trope home, but you know, uh, uh, should there be a, a Tony Award for understudies? Uh, probably. I don't know how they would do it. I don't know. I don't know how it works out to give a, an understudy, understudy a Tony Award. But just really, these people are wonderful. Uh, Patina Miller's witch was a very different witch than I've ever seen before, yes. and it was so deep and so wonderful. I you know I don't think the the script gives her time to grieve for Rapunzel, and that's it. Maybe I'm I'm heaping too much praise on how well written. The show. No, I don't think I am heaping too much praise on how well written the show is. But you're right. I mean, the show has a lot of beats where the emotion changes, and I guess it's really difficult to have the emotion change naturally from moment to moment when. We're just hit once after another with a major change and then a major change and then a major change. And how do you make, you know, how do you have her go from disdain in the first act and you know, chasing the mysterious man around yeah. to grieving in act two and a different type of rage? Now it's the rage of what she's lost. She's lost her power. She's lost her daughter. And bit by bit, she's just seeing everything fall apart around her. How do you make those those changes feel natural? Well, when, for for what it's worth, uh, I, I'm you know for what it's worth, I've always had mixed, very mixed feelings about the show. I think Act One is about perfect. 
Um, and then act two, I, I realize, of course, I know what they were trying to do, but I just mm -hmm. don't think they did it very well. And I, I do think a lot of the problems you mentioned are inherent in the writing, uh, mm -hmm. more so maybe in the book than the score, but the score as mm -hmm. well, I think. Um, and uh, famously, uh, uh, if, you, if you read back, they, they did have problems uh, with putting the show together, especially the second act, for example, the, the last midnight. I remember that song was a very, very late edition. Mm. Uh, there was another song called Boom Crunch, I believe. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I've heard about that. Um, so, uh, so, you, so I find your comments very interesting for that reason, Jenna, because I, I wonder how much of it is inherent in the show and yeah. how, how much. Uh, because also, as you said, not only have there been several major cast changes for this show from the city center production, but then also on top of that, you had three understudies. Um, exactly. So I, I guess it might be difficult to try to smooth over the, for, for what it's worth, I, I felt I did not have that problem with the show at city center. It seemed to me that the, the that the consistency and style was just about as good as it could have been. Uh, so maybe all those changes kind of shook it up. And plus the fact that they had um, very little extra rehearsal, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, since city center. I mean, that was just a, a few weeks ago, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and to have three new people and then three understudies, uh, you know, I think it's understandable, but uh, I, uh, I'm so happy for Kennedy Kanagawa who oh, apparently uh, studied, I think he studied puppetry specifically for uh for either this role or a recent one uh he was not it's not like he's been doing that for years but he did it so brilliantly and the audience just loves him and that puppet i mean i think the audience can't in their minds can't really even separate the two of them <laughs> uh which is is the way it's supposed to be yeah. and did you guys see he uh, kennedy had a whole new york times profile written on him no, yeah, I yes, that. I did see. Oh that. shoot, I got to so, find that. So I'm so happy for him, and I, I met him once or twice. He's the sweetest guy. Um, so that's really great. And Alex Grayson, by the way, I had seen him as Melchior in Spring Awakening at the Argyle uh, oh, before yeah. pre-pandemic, obviously. Um, so that's great to hear that he's moving up as well. Yeah, he was he was wonderful. Just a mm -hmm. fantastic Jack and uh, loved I mean, all of their performances were just so wonderful. Uh, yeah. I keep so saying that. I'm going to say something that's totally contradictory. To, I'm going to say two things and they're going to contradict <laughs> each other. <laughs> First of all, is that the show runs just about three hours. Uh, and and it's it's hard because and I think Michael hit upon it because act two how do you fix that without elongating it? And uh, mm. who, who who wrote that famous thing? Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, the letter's so long, I didn't have time to write a short one. You know, uh, uh, it's some, true though. Some, it's Voltaire, true. Some, somebody somebody yeah. wrote that. So yeah. writing it short is. is 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 so so hard. Difficult. And, yes. and then so that's the first part of my statement is it's, it's three hours and it's tough. The second part of my statement is is that Josh Henry didn't get enough to sing. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, Cinderella's Prince gets a character arc. Yeah. And exactly, Rapunzel's yeah. Prince does not. And. Yeah. It's kind of a disservice to both of them that uh, as we're watching their very similar stories play out, one of them gets to grow and change and the other doesn't. And 
And, uh, and of course, I would just love to see Josh Henry in absolutely anything. I kept thinking I wish they could do a True West or Little Foxes where they would switch roles regularly. <laughs> and how much fun would that be to see how what they bring to each role? And yeah, they do lovely work. It's just, uh, like I said, at times they felt like they were not on the same page. So the comedy of Philippa Sue, the comedy, oh the comic gosh, timing, the physical I, comedy, the I'm such uh, a jerk. I didn't even mention Pippa Sue. I'm going well, it's to a help. big, it's a big cast. It's, Jenna. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it is. We'd be here all day if I was just thinking yeah. how good everyone was. Uh, and Sarah Bareilles, uh, you know, yes. for her second Broadway appearance. <laughs> I have to. I I did not see her in Waitress. And I have to say, I'm amazed how good an actress she is for someone who really was, didn't start out as an actress, yeah. you know. <sighs> oh, so, I feel like I need to jump back in and just say how wonderful Pippa Sue was. And she plays the ingenue wonderfully. She always plays the ingenue wonderfully. Yeah. So, yes, she did a beautiful job as well. And her I don't care in act two stop the show. Now, I am I am convinced that this show is going to absolutely, definitely, without question, extend. Do oh, you both agree with me? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 I think that if it does extend, it's not going to be a long extension. Um, uh, and certainly there's going to be a lot of cast changes because I, I think that a number of these cat people have other things to do. With, uh, mm. In fact... Uh, in fact, we have Gavin Creel going out for a week and Cheyenne Jackson jumping in and uh, to, from uh, July 24th to, to right. August uh, 2nd. Um, so there's a lot of that stuff. I think Brian Darcy James got a television show, I think, I think oh, in the fall. I'm, I'm not sure about two, that. The Smasher. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if it does, I think there's going to be cast changes. Plus, the, there's other things scheduled for the St. James. So I don't know how much on. But the... Uh, but I have to tell you that the feeling that I got inside the St. James is the same feeling uh, that I got when I saw Hamilton at the Rogers um, right. you know, o- opening week uh, yeah. for both both of these things. It, it was just like, I mean, everything's firing on all cylinders and uh, just New York. And it's hard to get a ticket. Tickets are so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, you know, I, I hope that it extends, and I hope that lots of people get a chance to see it. Uh, I, I, do, I don't know if there'll be big cast changes or if they'll have to move theaters, but I don't know if jo- Jordan Roth will make them move theaters. But and no, but I, 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 this is so fascinating to me. First of all, this may be a, a, a stupid question. Do, do we know that they're, that they're selling the second balcony? I assume yes. In Into the Woods? Yeah, and do we know how much those tickets are? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if we don't, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to click on the get tickets right now, and I'm going to... But my point being that if they have a show that can fill the St. James, including Mm -hmm. the second balcony, they are going to keep it there as long as remotely possible. They have (laughs) orchestra, mezzanine, and balcony. I don't know if if that considers the second balcony. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that, that must. So be that, they are yeah. selling. They are selling that, and they have uh, tickets coming up. What uh, what day is this? Thursday, July twenty first. They have uh, two forty nine orchestra, one fifty nine mez, 
And uh, I'm looking for the balcony seats. 99. Nine, 99 balcony left, row E. So, well, that's considerably cheaper than 259. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Mez Center, 249. Orchestra right, 159. Orchestra Center, 195. 159, 229. So they're not, there's some premiums at 299. I'm not seeing anything. Oh, I see a 325, a premium. Uh, so, uh, I mean, they, they can sell these things right now. And, but uh, again, uh, uh, you know, we, the three of us and people listening to this podcast are probably more excited than the general public to see a Sondheim show. But, uh, you but, know, and I, and I think about Company, which won all the Tony Awards and is closing. Yeah, it exactly. seems to me that Into the Woods and Sweeney Todd have become in an entirely different class mm. than every other Sondheim show. Uh, there's something about those two shows that people just always go to see them and probably into the woods even more than Sweeney Todd, because of course it, it has the, uh, the benefit of the familiarity of those fairy tale characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, one interesting thing is a discussion of how it almost seems like um, it almost seems like sometimes this show is marketed or perceived as a children's show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which I it saw is lots of children there. Yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't. Uh, it does get very dark with lots of deaths <laughs> in act two. Um, uh, I mean, maybe it's good to uh, to bring ch- not really young children, I guess, uh, but somewhat older children to see this. Well, show. I was very, very young when I saw the original Broadway production. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure my parents knew what act two involved, but sure. we had very interesting conversation in the car heading back to Jersey. Uh, I'm after sure. That show. But, you know, it was a I have to say it was a good way to get some conversations going about cause and effect and consequences of actions mm. and how the hero of one story is the villain of another. Mm. And it's all mm. about perspective. Yeah. Mm. It's not a bad way to open up that dialogue. Right. And exactly. Just like the Karate Kid. Who's the villain in the Karate Kid? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So Rob Johnston in our chat room brings up that he uh, that he asks if didn't the piano lesson get moved from the St. James to another theater? Uh, Jolly Johnny Olsinski from uh, the New York Post uh, has stated that it it has been moved, but we've not gotten any official word on that. Right. Uh, So we'll see what happens. But piano lesson is scheduled for October, which is right on the heels of Into the Woods. So if piano lesson does get moved, if we see that press release come out, I'd assume that the next press release that comes out after that would be that Into the Woods gets extended. You can bet your butt on that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see what happens. Uh, Let me run over to Broadway Stars for a second because I don't know if there's something scheduled for the spring after piano lessons and there's nothing so far scheduled in the St. James after the piano lessons so it could leave into the woods open up there so uh, last thing I'd like to say about into the woods this morning from 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 me of course if you guys have something else to add please do uh, was that uh, I was sitting next to my daughter uh, I took to see into the woods and uh, when they wrote, sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood, I just couldn't hold it together. Yeah, I'm sure. Such yeah. a 
Such yeah, a beautiful show. Yeah. All right. So next up, uh, Michael, you saw Love Quirks. So tell us about this. Yeah, this is a show that Peter uh, really enjoyed, and he spoke about it last week, I think. Um, and it's at this theater that I've been in before, but now has a new name and has been, uh, I guess, renovated and reconfigured a little bit. It's called the AMT Theater on 45th Street between 8th and 9th. And I'm not sure what AMT stands for. <laughs> yeah, we, we looked that up last time and I couldn't find it. Oh, did you? Either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it almost, you might think American musical theater, but you know, what, what would that mean? Um, and there's, and there's no, uh, I was hoping there might be a little explanation of it in the program, but there isn't. Um, so I just wanted to say briefly, I, I enjoyed it. I, uh, I have some familiarity with the work of Seth Bisonhirsch. I think that's yeah. how he pronounces mm-hmm. it, um, who wrote the music and lyrics of the show. Uh, I've actually known him f- for quite a few years just uh he, he does shows that don't tell mama etc and presents songs there and um i think that uh that was the best part of this show the songwriting uh i i thought there was a lot of cleverness uh and a lot of craft uh i appreciated that the lyrics uh were very witty and uh rhymed always as far as i could say although i did notice a few miss accents in the in the uh, the words as opposed as compared to the music uh, the words the way the words were set to the music so that's my, some something you might look at um, but i uh, i i thought this show was uh, i enjoyed the first part of it a lot better then it just seemed to keep going on and treading water it's it's a very 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 modern day love story sort of about these four people who have um these very interesting relationships with each other there's uh one woman who was in love with a gay guy when they were uh when they were very young i guess in high school and uh and now they live they have come to live together and so it's whether or not she's really over him or not and how that's going to progress and then there's another uh woman who had been had an affair with this other guy and then they wind up also living together with the other couple in, in the same apartment uh and so it's uh you know how, how these four are negotiating their their relationships um but i and i thought a lot of it was fine but it seemed like there were too many songs for one thing there were more songs than there needed to be which that doesn't happen very often but it did in this case and also like i i, I say it seemed like after a while they just kind of kept going in circles and there wasn't much new being added it was just these little dramas that would happen and these little funny things that would happen and and then they would be resolved but then you be go on to the next little drama and the next little funny thing and there was no overall plot really i i felt also they they um i'm a little surprised at the writers uh did i say the book is by mark childers uh and music and lyrics by seth bisonhurst they ended um the first act with the title song called love quirks and it was one of the best songs in the show as far as just how enjoyable and clever it was and the melody was really really nice and to to listen to and the lyrics were very witty but um but there was no uh, it was just this very funny song with no 
conflict in it and no drama. And you're not supposed to end the first act of a musical on something like that. I mean, there has to either be um, uh, something dramatic that happens right at the end of the first act or uh, indication that that's something really amazing is going to happen in act two. There has to be something to lead you, uh, you know, into intermission, really anticipating coming back. And this didn't do that at all. It almost felt like the end of the show. <laughs> um, mm. So I think that maybe maybe they should reconsider putting that song at the end, the very end, uh, or moving it somewhere else, because I don't think that that worked at all. And I think they have to come up with a new um, solution for the the end of Act One. Um, but anyway, uh, it, it was very enjoyable, especially the cast, uh, Aaron Lamar, Maggie McDowell, Matthew Schatz, and Lauren Testerman uh, are the are the four. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of talent there. This this theater um, has been problematic from the beginning because there there are no wings. <laughs> there are literally no wings. Uh, 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 so they have to work around that. And uh, in this case, they, they put in a for the, the audience, they put in a, a, a they put the audience basically on risers now, which is good as far as, um, you know, the rake and having uh, you, you sitting in, you know, uh, higher than the, the, the people in front of you. But the problem is that the, the, the stage in for this show is the floor of the theater. So you're still going to have a lot of sightline problems if it's a full house. Fortunately, well, fortunately for me, uh, when I went there, it was a very sparse audience, so I didn't have a problem seeing anything. But if there's a, if there's a big audience, you're not going to see, I think, the, the bottom half of the performers' bodies. And I think that's an issue. I, I, I wonder why they didn't put um, a little, just, just platforms in, you know, for the length of the the width of the theater uh, to lift up the whole playing area uh, at least one or two feet. Um, so that's another suggestion I would make for them if they're going to continue doing shows in that theater. And we do have to find out more about um, the AMT theater. Cause I really don't have any idea what it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I will have a link to love quirks in the show note at the AMT theater. It, uh, See if uh, anybody can figure out what AMT stands for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jenna, you went over to the park to see Richard III. Uh, so tell us about it. Yeah, uh, I was excited to see the uh, to see this production. I haven't seen Richard III since, uh, oh, when was it when Mark Rylance did the production uh, uh, yeah. in Rep a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, it felt, I got to say, it feels so appropriate to watch a play about a cruel despotic leader's attempts to achieve and maintain power as we are all glued to our screen watching hearings about a cruel despotic leader mm. attempting to achieve and maintain power this feels so timely this feels like a really timely production and uh, actually even if we go back about a year uh there was headlines about another cruel despotic leader trying to maintain power yep. <laughs> and, and those headlines continue now except that fortunately the cruel despotic leader is no longer currently in power uh yeah it's uh <laughs> uh 
uh, it, it just felt like a very timely, well, it's, it's a timeless story about ambition and, and its effects, I guess, um, uh, ambition and villainy. Um, this production of Richard III felt uh, much like Into the Woods. To me, it felt very uneven. It has a lot of really strong moments, but those moments don't always come together to create an effective whole. Uh, one really interesting angle of the piece uh, is that this Richard is not depicted as having any kind of physical difference, despite the character's lines in the very beginning to the contrary. Uh, Denai Guerrera doesn't bend her back or hide one arm to play Richard. It kind of struck me as strange. And then I read an interview on NPR. Uh, James, I'll send you the link if you'd like. Sure. Uh, director Robert O'Hara said, uh, this is the quote from the interview, Richard's otherness is his blackness in this world. And Guerrera said he is not Caucasian and fair like them. And I've been thinking about that interpretation a lot, especially since it's a wonderfully diverse cast, not only in terms of uh, ethnic background, but in terms of physical differences and lots of different body types represented on stage, which is wonderful. Uh, it didn't seem to me that there was anything about this Richard that sets him apart from other people on the stage. And I will absolutely acknowledge I am watching this from a white woman's perspective. So I'd be really interested to hear other people's thoughts on if that interpretation was effective for them. Uh, so please let me know if you get to see the show or if you've seen it or if you see it on PBS when it airs, because I got to be there one of the nights they were filming it. So I'm really glad to see that. Um, so perhaps, like I mentioned, to make up for the to make up for a performer without any physical differences playing the lead, several of the other roles are played by performers with physical differences or the characters are suggested to have disabilities, which makes for some really fantastic moments. Uh, Richard and his mother, the Duchess of York, who's played by Monique Holt, have an extended conversation in sign language. The conversation is not translated, and those of us who don't speak ASL very well are left out of it. It's just a fantastic little moment that gives the audience a taste of how Richard feels left out and he feels ostracized and othered. It's a wonderful highlight of the show. Uh, Guerrera hams it up as Richard. She revels in his villainy and in manipulating everyone around him. But at least to me, she doesn't give him a lot of reason for his rage and for his cruelty. There doesn't seem to be a lot of nuance in her performance. She is a lot of fun to watch, but I went into the theater remembering 10 years earlier, seeing her play Isabel in Measure for Measure, and I loved her performance in that. So I was a little disappointed in her take on this role. It, it did not always work for me. Uh, but there are a lot of really brilliant performances on that stage. Uh, Sharon Washington is a real highlight. Uh, she played uh, Queen Anne 30 years ago against Denzel Washington's Richard. And now she's uh, she plays Margaret of Anjou. And she owns every moment she's on that stage. She is every inch the queen in every movement, every word. When she curses the new royal family that has pushed her family out, her words have absolute power. You know nothing good is going to happen to any of them. Uh, Heather Alicia Sims is a brilliant Queen Elizabeth. She only has a few moments on stage, but in her early scenes, she conveys pride. Her spine is 
ramrod straight. Her head is high. She is a wonderful queen in her first scenes. And then later in the show, as disaster is just befalling everybody, her grief and her regret are just heartbreaking. She conveys it in her posture has just collapsed inward. And even before she says a word when she appears late in the show, it, she's heartbreaking to see. You just see all this grief in her. It beautiful performance. Uh, Ali Stroker is a wonderful comedian. She's a phenomenal singer, but the role of Anne Neville is just not a good fit for her. Uh, the character only has a few moments on stage, but her big scene gives a performer a chance to convey grief, then rage, then shock, then confusion, and then attraction all within just a few minutes. And Stroker doesn't convey any of those emotions. And worse, she seems rather uncomfortable with the language, and it's really disappointing because she has been so wonderful in so many other roles, but this just isn't a good role for her or the right role for her. Or it might be that Robert O'Hara just isn't the right director for her because his work on the show is really uneven. There's you know, wonderful costuming by, um, oh, Del, no, yes, Del, Didi Ayite, I'm sorry, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name, Didi Ayite's costumes are beautifully era appropriate. They're great. But you know, that's very you know, Renaissance, uh, late medieval costuming and staging suddenly gets turned into modern dance with modern music. And it it just breaks the mood. Those moments feel random. They don't feel like a natural progression from scene to scene. Um, it, uh, maybe that's the biggest problem. There's no consistent tone to this production. There's no mounting dread leading up to the final battle. There's no despair as Richard's ambition causes so much destruction. There are a lot of individual scenes and individual moments that really do work well. But as a whole, they just feel disconnected from one another. And it makes for a somewhat unsatisfying evening. I mean, I really hope people will watch it when it airs on PBS. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on what worked or did not work for them. Um, it, it's fascinating in the, to me at least, the parts that were effective and the parts that were not. Um, oh, I, I also want to highlight Myung Hicho's uh, set of uh, arches. It's beautiful. I, I think they're gothic. I'm not. I'm not an expert at architecture, so I'm not sure, but they look like you know, the entrances to palaces or cathedrals, and they rotate sometimes to become doorways, to become uh, cells, almost prison cages that characters are trapped in. Some be beautiful, and again, circling back to Into the Woods, simple, uh, simple but effective scenery that it can become lots of different spaces very easily. Uh, and Alex Janeshill's lighting really helps, uh, really works well with the set to uh, to create all those different locations. Um, and, and circling back to what I said uh, in the very beginning, in an age of extreme propaganda and misinformation, it's really kind of fascinating to look at Shakespeare's histories and ex as an example of artistic propaganda. Uh, Shakespeare had to toe the party line, so he had to criticize certain people who Queen Elizabeth wanted criticize, regarded regardless, sorry, of what history suggests they actually did. Uh, I'm 
not a historian by any stretch, but I, I love this era of English history and have read a number of books about it. And seeing this play as propaganda to support the Tudor cause rather than delving into the nuances of the Wars of the Roses uh, is kind of fascinating in its own right and really made me think about the propaganda and misinformation people are getting fed regularly today and how it kind of hasn't changed all that much. And I wonder what people will be looking at, uh, you know, the art that's being created today, 500 years from now, assuming humanity survives. Uh, how will people be looking back at the art we have today and how it reflects what history has determined? I have two questions. Uh, it's interesting. You didn't even mention uh, the fact that Richard is being played by a woman. It sounds like they're, 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 they've thrown so much into this production that almost that's almost an afterthought. But I was wondering if you felt uh, anything is gained by having it be played by a woman, aside from the, the racial aspect. And also, what can Robert O'Hara possibly have meant by that comment about Richard's blackness being his otherness if the cast is that diverse? What what possible meaning could he have there? <laughs> I'm well. That's it. I'm not entirely sure, and that's and again, I will absolutely acknowledge I am coming this from uh, coming at this from a white woman's perspective, and there are any number of things I don't, I can't understand. Um, but again, Jenna, that was what kind of? I'm sorry. Hello, uh, Jenna. Are, are are you Robert O'Hara? Are in disguise? So, I mean, you can't really answer for him in that, in no, that case. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah. no, I, oh, I no, don't but know. I, my, no, but I think, yes. no, I but I think I think it's fair to speculate on, on what he meant. If, uh, you know, I, obviously, if Richard were the only black person in the show mm. or, uh, or the only person of color, then I would be very clear what he meant. But uh, since uh, he or she is not, I, I, I just wonder... And, and and I realize you can't answer for him. I, I was just asking what yeah. your thoughts were as to what he meant. Uh, yeah. As for me, it just sounds like words that he was just saying uh, because he doesn't really have a vision. And I didn't see the show, uh, but I'm just talking about what His I, you know, what, what, about you're, show, yeah. what you're saying about the casting. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. And it's funny. I, I it, I'm so I was so delighted to have a black woman playing a classical lead. It, I was more focused on her being a person of color rather than her being a woman of color. And right. I, perhaps I should have mentioned that in the beginning. Uh, but especially after reading the NPR interview, I've just been thinking a lot about those comments. And I don't have an answer. I'd be very interested in uh, in hearing other people's interpretations, uh, especially audience members of color and what they thought about that. Uh, since I mean, I have no lines in the scene. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, this uh, Richard III is just wrapping up. I think uh, this evening's performance, July 17th, is the last performance of this. So if you are hearing this and you can get over to the park quickly, you might be able to catch this. And uh, 
But uh, as Jenna mentioned, please weigh in and email us on our uh, all our email addresses are in the uh, show notes, as well as touch base with us on various social media platforms to let us know what you thought about this. And if you see it, hopefully later this year on uh, PBS, uh, I'd be interested in continuing the conversation. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Seeing it from uh, different perspectives. It's it was certainly not a boring performance at all. I was I've been thinking about it in the past week since I've seen it. It's uh, it's going to be living in my mind for a while. Even the parts that to me did not work. Uh, it was never dull, and it's very thought provoking. Even if, like I said moments were not as effective as I thought they could be. So I'd be very interested to hear other people's opinions. Great for it to be captured. I forgot that it's going to be captured and uh, put on uh, great performances on PBS as well. So hopefully uh, uh, people can catch it there if they don't see it. I I had forgotten to mention before the uh, uh, speculation I've been talking with others about uh, Into the Woods being captured if they can't extend or maybe if they do extend. Oh, I hope so things like that so mm. uh, because so uh, you know even if they extend so few people are still you know you're talking about uh 1500 seats uh eight and uh eight, eight performances a week so you're talking about uh 12,000 people a week at most at the very very most and so many people are repeat repeat offenders to the into the woods uh so you know well, you're gotta see talking, all the different Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. Got to see gotta all. See, got to see all the different uh, understudies who are going on and all the different interpretations. So, yeah. yes. So hopefully uh, Into the Woods will be captured as well. And and we'll be able to see that in some form or another. Uh, so, uh, and Jenna, I found uh, an interview with Tanai Guerrero on NPR with Jeff London that was done recently about the Creature of the Third. Is that the uh, NPR uh, thing? Or maybe you just send it to me and uh, checking. We'll see. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's I it. Will, okay. That's yeah. It. So I've got it. I got it in the show notes. It. So check it out and listen to Jeff London and Denai Guerrero talk. Jeff London is just a wonderful, wonderful uh, journalist who has been covering Broadway for NPR for so many, so many, so many years. Uh, and Terry Gross also is a, uh, who does uh, uh, what's Terry Gross's uh, fresh fresh air fresh air. Um, I was extending my arms really wide so that you guys could see my confusion. Um, so Terry Gross's Fresh Air has done a number of things to cover Broadway as well. So NPR is such a huge resource. If you uh, can't get enough of Broadway, uh, please get over to NPR and check out Terry Gross and Jeff London at the very least. So, Michael, you got over to the town hall uh, a few weeks back to see Scott Siegel's show Almost on Broadway, uh, part of his Broadway by the Year series. Uh, so tell us about this. Yeah, I had neglected to mention this last time uh, because we had a very full program last time. Uh, uh, but I didn't want to let it go by because it really was a wonderful show. Uh, it consisted of numbers from shows that played off Broadway or that played out of town and never made it to Broadway, uh, which was an interesting uh, way to put together a program. And Scott had uh, Danny Gardner as his choreographer and Ross Patterson as his music director. Uh, and it was uh, the cast ranged from Christine Andreas, uh, who opened the show with Try to Remember, uh, to uh, they had two Forbidden Broadway alumni uh, who just 
tore down the house, Gina Kreismar and Michael West. Um, and Gina did her her Liza, uh, <laughs> uh, her Liza Minnelli. Uh, uh, I think she and Christine Petty were the, the two most famous uh, people to do Liza for Forbidden Broadway. And Gina did it towards the end of the run of Forbidden Broadway. So maybe not as many people saw her do it. And I was glad that she got to do it in front of a full house at Town Hall because she really did bring down the house, as I said. And Michael West um, did Bob Goulet. And that was beyond hysterical. Um, Oh, and then the two of them did that that duet of uh, where Ethel Merman is trying to teach the Phantom how to sing without a mic. (laughs) Um, oh my god (laughs) yeah it was it was hysterical um but then uh lots of other wonderful people brian charles rooney sang laughing matters from when when excuse me when pigs fly uh, a really really wonderful and always relevant song uh kelly rapke uh who still has her voice phenomenally intact did stranger in the rain from children of Eden. Mm. This wonderful guy named Pedro Capetti did several uh, numbers throughout the show, including out there that, that really, that really exciting power ballad from hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, it, it just really was. Oh, and they, they uh, were intending to have a, a reunion of the four original plaids, um, but unfortunately, uh, uh, David Engel had to call out because he had a positive COVID diagnosis, even though he, uh, he apparently didn't have any symptoms at all and he didn't feel sick. Uh, cause I ran into him, uh, like the following day and he said he, he was fine, but he was unable to perform because he had to quarantine um but uh yes but larry rabin jason gra and leo denio uh the other three plaids did reunite and that was a, a wonderful evening as well um so th- this this was one of scott's uh best shows that i've seen at town hall he's really very busy scott siegel doing shows there and at 54 below um so um i think not a week goes by that he doesn't have <laughs> Yeah. At least one show at, at either of those venues. Uh, not a day goes by. Not a, not, not a not day a goes day by. Goes thank by. you. Thank yeah. you for that. Yes. Thank you for this. <laughs> um, oh, and, um, and uh, coming up on uh, tomorrow uh, at Town Hall uh, at uh, Scott has Broadway's Rising Stars. This is the show. Uh, I'll read the, the blurb. This is the annual concert event that launches performing arts graduates into their careers. Among our past rising stars are Anthony Ramos, uh, mm. star of Into, In the Heights in the movie, Ali Stroker, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and Kyle Scatliff, uh, who has been on Broadway uh I looked it up. He's been on Broadway in Les Mis and Hamilton and The Color Purple and To Kill a Mockingbird. So they really have uh, have given a, a an initial uh, kind of showcase to some really, really talented young people. And you never know who you're going to see there. So if you're um, if you don't have anything else to do uh, on Monday, uh, you might want to go to town hall and see that. I have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, the 14th annual 
Broadway Rising Stars concert yeah, yeah. at Town Hall. So I have a link to that in the show notes. If you're in town and you're able to get to see it, that'd be that'd be great. Hey, Paul Witte in our uh, chat room brought up that Michael R. Jackson's going to be on Fresh Air on Monday. So definitely tune in to hear that. Michael R. Jackson, such a such a wonderful interview, and his mm-hmm. insights are just uh, amazing. And with a hit Broadway show right now, uh, I, I I'm Every interview I've seen with Michael R. Jackson pre-Broadway and then during Broadway and then Tony Awards and post-Tony Awards, it, it it the joy he brings is the kind of energy that we need on Broadway right now. So it, it's so wonderful to see that. So uh, yeah, check out NPR and Fresh Air on Monday. If not, you can get it on the NPR.org website uh, slash Fresh Air, NPR.org slash uh, fresh air and you can get all the Terry Gross's stuff there she's just my next life I want to come back as Terry Gross so <laughs> definitely alright so uh, last thing for this morning Michael we're not going to really review this but we'll talk about it uh, you saw a rehearsal of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof yes uh, they did just three brief scenes so I really really can't comment on the production who's they? Uh, uh, it's called uh, Ruth Stage, uh-huh. uh, uh, and the I, I don't think that our readers would have heard of most of the actors. Uh, Maggie is played by Sonoya Mizuno, Sonoya Mizuno, excuse me, and Brick is Matthew Rogatis, and Christian Jules LeBlanc is Big Daddy. But there is one name that our listeners would have heard of, and that's Alison Fraser, who's playing Big Mama. And I uh, am hoping to see it, if only for her, uh, because she's really one of my favorites. And I, 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 I did, uh, I don't usually do things like this, but I have um, a CD that Alison made some years ago called Tennessee Williams Words and Music. And it's based on the whole uh, fact that uh, there are lots of songs and music in Tennessee Williams plays and then also other songs that sort of relate to uh, some of the characters in Tennessee Williams plays. For example, I've always thought I always thought this even before Allison did it, that the song Sophisticated Lady sounds like a description of Blanche Dubois. Uh, I, I mean, it's really amazing how those lyrics kind of really describe Blanche Dubois. Um, and that's one of the selections on Allison's album, which is fantastic. So I, I remember that I had that album. Uh, so I brought it to this open rehearsal for her to sign it. <laughs> and uh, I saw her afterwards. And when I when I took it at the, the album out of my bag, she got so excited and she showed it to Sonoya Mizuno and said, listen, this look, look, this is my album that I told you about. <laughs> um, so I think it's uh, obviously appropriate to this current project that she's doing. And Big Mama, I would say, is a very different role for Allison. But uh, she uh, did a little bit uh, in one of the scenes that they that they staged for the 
press event and I think she's going to be wonderful in it and bring a whole new interpretation in it. Um, so this is at the theater at St. Clement's. Um, it started performances on July 15th and opens on July 24th. And they're billing this as the first, uh, well, well, the off-Broadway premiere production <laughs> of Cat <laughs> on a, a Hot Tin Roof. I, I wonder if it was difficult for them to get the rights or not. Uh, I mean, I guess it all depends on timing. Um, but uh, they did get the rights, and uh, so they're doing it at St. Clement's. Uh, and if you haven't seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in a while or would like to see it again, this is your opportunity. All right. So I found the Ruth Stage uh, website, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well so that you can check this out and uh, see what happens. If you... Yes. Off-Broadway premiere. Interesting. <laughs> so, so so interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, so what else have we got here? Oh, funny girl. We do oh. have, you know. <laughs> so uh, warning here, Jenna's going to curse a lot. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I think she should go first. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, Jenna, um, there is this uh, little skit called Funny Girl on Broadway right now, and oh, there, there is. There seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of backstage shenanigans going on. Uh, we haven't talked about it much on uh, this week on Broadway, but uh, uh, what are your thoughts about the whole Beanie Leah uh, type of controversy and event that has been happening over the last couple of weeks? Uh, nothing good. Those are my thoughts. Nothing mm. good. <laughs> um. <sighs> I, I absolutely think, and I, I should say, I should start with, I am a big Beanie Feldstein fan. I've enjoyed her work since Hello, Dolly. Uh, I think she was miscast in this role. I don't know why nobody earlier on uh, prevented her from, or I don't know how she was cast when she clearly has a hard time singing these songs. And I should Add, the show was specifically written for Barbara Streisand's skill set, uh, as I understand it, and I'm hardly an expert, but as I understand, the show, what wound up on stage was very different from what was originally on the page, and it was constantly being changed to suit Barbara Streisand's skills. Mm. So any performer coming into that role already has a huge uphill climb because they've got to match somebody else's skill set when that somebody else is Barbara Streisand and they've got a you know copy or not copy but it was written for her cadence it was written for her sense of humor it was written for her voice the songs were written for her voice so I've not seen uh this is the first time I've ever seen uh funny girl on stage so I can't compare this production to any others beyond the movie but anyone else stepping into this role already has a massive challenge i don't think beanie was right for the role i also don't think she deserved any of the vitriol she got the the cruelty the bullying that she got was absolutely undeserved she should not have been cast in the first place but the criticisms lodged against her were more cruel than critical and I think there's a major difference. And, you know, as someone who reviews shows, I try hard never to step into the cruelty side, even when someone has really pissed me off. Um, 
I, I <laughs> so I absolutely feel a lot of sympathy for Beanie Feldstein. Um, that said, uh, I've been hearing horrible things about Leah Michelle for years, especially with so many of her coworkers on Glee describing really horrible acts of racism and you know, bullying. And I really have a problem that this doesn't seem to have been, you know, the people she's hurt still seem to be really hurt. It's not like they've moved on. It doesn't seem like uh, there has been any act of apology or act of contrition. Uh, I believe several years ago she did issue uh, some kind of apology, and I don't have the energy right now to look it up. Uh, it did not, to me as a white person, it did not seem to really be an act of soul searching, of recognizing harm caused, and you know until she, until the people who she's hurt have forgiven her. Uh, I kind of have a problem with her stepping into a role like this. Uh, and, you know, I was looking at Samantha Marie Ware's uh, Twitter feed. She's clearly not happy about it. And she was one of the people who had a lot to say about the racist attacks. So that attacks may be uh, a, a fraught word. Uh, the racist actions, I will say. Um, it, it, I really have a problem with her getting a leading role after so many people have come forward to complain about her behavior. And it doesn't seem that there's been any effort to, to make amends, to be better. Um, you know, I, I try not to get involved in gossip, but I would really want to hear from the people who said that she hurt them, that there's been some kind of apology, a real apology, and that she has reached out to show signs of being a better person. Um, and I don't know her personally at all. She could be perfectly nice. I don't know. I just know these people have spoken out and I believe them. And uh, I would, before she steps into a part like this, I would really want to see that there have been efforts made. And thank you, Rob is, Rob is saying, uh, the apology was to where? Oh, sorry, Rob Johnson posted in the chat that she apparently did apologize to where. It was felt that it was less an apology for what she did than she was sorry it was made public. Right, exactly. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for that, Rob. Also, I mean, for what it's worth, uh, from what I read, and not that it really, I don't know how much difference it even makes, but it seems to me that um, the reports were that Leah was an equal opportunity bullier. Or was, uh, and that you know there were certainly several white people who felt that she behaved horrendously towards them, and so I'm I'm not sure how much of it is racist and just general, you know, a general problem with uh, behaving horrendously to certain people that she worked with. Uh, and also, I, I, I do just want to clarify, would you agree, uh, Jenna, that the, 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 uh, the bullying of Beanie Feldstein uh, was, was not in the professional reviews? Uh, but, no. but, right, okay, I just, yeah, because I, I do think, I, I was very proud of the uh, professional reviewers that it seemed to me that they were very careful about not doing that and trying to make it clear that they felt she was miscast uh, without getting into anything that could be perceived as uh, 
fat shaming or, or, or any other kind of bullying. Right. Uh, no, I, I agree. Um, and you know, I, like I said, I'm a fan of hers and I don't know if that's uh, affecting my, my take on this. Uh, even though I do agree she was miscast, but a lot of the vitriol came from the fan base and right. that was just really heartbreaking uh, to see that kind of vitriol. Uh, and that is a, that is something obviously that was not an issue 20 years ago or even less than that uh, before social media and yeah and, mm-hmm. and social media has really uh, taken this to a whole new level of, the genie out of the bottle yes yeah, yeah. and I mean yeah. uh, on the flip side of this I, I don't really know Leah Michelle I, I don't know Bina Feldstein uh, but these producers I do know Sonia Friedman Scott Landis David Babani Roy Furman uh Daryl Roth, uh, Jordan Roth. Uh, I mean, these are people that I, I can't imagine are going to put Leah Michelle on a stage and give her a high-profile contract without sitting down with her and her <sighs> agents and say, uh, do you think they're going to put themselves in this kind of target? No. And also, as I said, um, even if everything we've read about her in the past is true, don't you think that she would stop behaving that way if only out of self-preservation? You know, even if she hasn't suddenly become a wonderful human being, and even if all of that was true, I I can't imagine that she would continue to to bully and and act like a diva with with this current cast. I mean, Uh, they're they're putting themselves in they're they're putting themselves in financial legal legal jeopardy to hire somebody who's got a reputation like that without having to address that first and be convinced that. The, that uh, Leah uh, is a, is a different person these days. So, I, I guess we're we're gonna have to see about that. On the other hand, you know, Garth Drabinsky was given a second chance, and look how oh, that turned God. out. So oh, some yeah. some people just you know oh, will look the other way and just if they think money can be made or That's w- it. whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the money, 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 as the song goes. But uh, you know, there's, there have to be things that are. I I don't I want the cast obviously to have a job. I want the cast to keep the cast, the crew, everyone right. involved. I want them to keep working. Yes. Especially in such difficult times. Uh, I don't I don't really think that Leah Michelle sells tickets, do you? I think well, that, uh, you know, if she if she gets great reviews and things like that, certainly that'll affect it a little bit, but I mean she's she's not a box office draw that, that I can Her first mm, performance is sold out. Yeah, and yeah. and, and but, I've been seeing uh, uh, some some tickets going for astronomical prices, but that's just the first I, I, performance. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's sustainable. No, I, I don't and, think so. And, yeah. I, and I do think that there are at least at least a hundred women in New York that could easily uh, play that role with mm-hmm. with perfection. So uh, it, it's just so sad that this this production has been dragged into such uh such drama unnecessary drama that uh, you know takes everybody's focus off of uh making life better for er- for everybody <laughs> so i i hope that they are smart with what's happening here with leah michelle and and that that this is this turns out to be a, a successful thing it, it it does really uh seem as though that uh beanie was not a, a great fit for this um but yeah. whatever happens, I think we all agree that it's fascinating how this has become front page news. Uh, well, not front page. Out, yeah, but, yeah, but, but outside uh, of the Broadway 
yeah. Uh, realm. Oh, yeah. It was the top trending topic on Twitter nationwide. I, I went to audition for a production of Guys and Dolls on Staten Island the other mm-hmm. day. Uh, and I walked in and the musical director who I know said to me, he said, I was thinking of you the other day because I thought if anybody knows what's going on behind the scenes here, you would. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I really don't know anything more than you do. <laughs> uh, but the, everyone is talking about it. Yeah. You know, and, you know, yeah. I, I wish all the best for Beanie Feldstein. I yeah, will absolutely. absolutely see whatever her next project is. Uh, my my appreciation for her has not changed at all. And her her forty year project uh, with uh, yes, <laughs> with Ben Plan twenty year twenty year yes. Yeah. Um, and I hope I'm wrong about Leah Michelle. I hope she has genuinely changed. I hope she is reaching out to people and making amends. And I hope she is a better person than I have been led to believe from all the reports that I've heard over the years. She does have a child now. Maybe that will help. Mm. That people, people do grow and change. The person you are at 30 is not the person you are at 20. Yes. And certainly the, not the person you were at 10. Oh my so, God. Thank, thank goodness. Nobody thank holds God me for accountable that. Right? for <laughs> what I said in the nineties and the two thousands. My goodness. Oh, okay. All the, okay. all the things we all said. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. I mean, I hope I, I want to believe that people can be better uh, I just have not seen as yet any evidence of that. I hope I'm wrong. I hope this keeps a lot of people involved with the production employed. Uh, I hope, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I would like to be, but I also want to see. I wish, yes, very much. <laughs> I wish a lot of things. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. So, yeah. Any case, I'm rambling. Okay, so let's wrap it up for today. Before we get on to the musical moment, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Peter is away this week, so we're going to get back to trivia next week. But for right now, Michael, what do we have in the musical moment? Well, one person we haven't mentioned in uh, our discussion of the funny girl drama is Julie Benko. Mm. Uh, who has been very well received uh, as the, I'm not sure if her actual title is standby or understudy or cover uh, for Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl, and who has gone on a lot uh, because of Beanie Feldstein's frequent absences, uh, including her uh, absence this weekend, apparently due to tonsillitis. Um, and it was reported now that Julie is going to be doing the show, the role for pretty much the, the whole month of August uh, before, well, after Beanie departs and before Leah Michelle begins in September. Um, and I did get to see her in the role and I would say she's wonderful in it. Did, did Jenna, did you see her in it? I did not, and I'd love to while I still have yeah. the chance. Well, you have, well, you'll have a lot of opportunity, <laughs> including the whole month of August. Uh, she is wonderful. And if on uh, tomorrow night, if you do not go to 
Scott Siegel's Broadway Rising Star Show at Town Hall, you might want to go to Stephen Brinberg's Simply Barber Show at uh, this newish venue called Chelsea Table and Stage, mm-hmm. uh, because not only uh, is, is Stephen's uh, Barbara Streisand show uh, world famous and and acclaimed and he's so wonderful doing her, but his guests uh, tomorrow night will be uh, Julie Benko <laughs> and uh, Nikita Burstein, who recently uh, played the lead in Romeo and Bernadette and uh, who's going to be in my Bernstein show my Bernstein on Broadway show at 54 in September. Uh, so th- those are two great guests uh, that you're going to get on top of uh, Stephen's performance. If you can go to Chelsea table and stage tomorrow at 7 PM. And uh, so our opener, uh, uh, our opening music today was a uh, clip I found of Julie uh, on YouTube singing Matchmaker, Matchmaker from Fiddler on the Roof uh, at 54 Below uh, in, in a wonderful arrangement. And, and you can get an idea of how good her voice is from that. And our closure is Nikita Burstein singing that fantastic song, Goodbye from Catch Me If You Can, which is a show that was not a hit, but at least it gave us a phenomenal, phenomenal song. Uh, I've heard several people perform that number uh, live and in person, and it's just an absolute roof raiser and showstopper. So those are our musical moments for this week, and I hope you enjoy them. All right. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Tell the spotlight man, turn off my light, because the show is done now. And it's time to leave the stage. Yeah, the good guy won now. And the band has no more songs to play. It's a happy ending, so I'll say goodbye. Goodbye to all the make-believe. Goodbye. There's no more magic up my sleeve. There's nothing left to act up here. I'll take my bow and disappear. The questions are left for answering. There's only one word left to sing. It's goodbye. It's a happy ending to the greatest show on earth. Now the curtain's descending. And I hope you got your money's worth Better stop the show now Cause I wanna leave on top So get up and go now Cause there's nothing left inside my head Everything that's left you says being said So goodbye Goodbye to all the song and dance Goodbye Stand a better chance The show is through The part's been played No standing in the wings Afraid No violins or phony tears The word that's music To my ears is goodbye Well goodbye Goodbye
of stopping The sun could be my start I want to live a life And not just play a part I'll walk into the sunset I'll sail across the sea The final word, the last you'll hear of me I tried before, but here's the last goodbye. 